The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Now, green hydrogen is one of the most talked about clean energy technologies today, and that's for good reason. It has the potential as a fuel source to address emissions coming from some of the harder to abate sectors like transport or heavy industry. But equally talked about is the cost, as well as how to get this small, light and flammable gas from where it's produced to where it needs to be used. But this isn't a show about hydrogen. We're going to talk about ammonia. Because recently, one of BNF's analysts took a closer look at the things you can make with hydrogen. And in this instance, that's ammonia. Currently, production of ammonia accounts for anywhere between 1% to 2% of global emissions. And overall, it could be as much as 3% of global emissions coming from ammonia's production and use. Now, let's just stop there for a second. 3% of global emissions from ammonia. And while ammonia is best known as a fertilizer, and of course there are other use cases such as explosives, and we're going to talk about those a little bit later in the show, for those that are closely watching the hydrogen space, they may also be thinking about ammonia as a potential for an innovative shipping fuel, or perhaps thinking about how we're going to ship hydrogen itself. Well, ammonia could be an answer by converting hydrogen to ammonia and then back again. But really, what does this mean for cost and just overall efficiency? Now, to talk about this chemical, I'm joined by Dithya Basham. He's an associate from BNF's hydrogen team. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe to receive updates on future episodes on your device and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which will make us more discoverable by others. But right now, let's jump into my conversation with Adi about ammonia. Thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be in the podcast. Thanks, Dana. So we set off on this journey initially thinking, let's let's do another show about hydrogen. It's a ever popular topic. And as it turns out, this is not a show about hydrogen at all. This is a show about ammonia, which certainly hydrogen is a part of the discussion, but it has such a, let's say, fascinating history and future. So let's get started with that. First of all, give me a quick definition of what is ammonia for the novice chemist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's how our journey started as well in the hydrogen team. Ammonia is its own world. Ammonia is a molecule that is produced using hydrogen and nitrogen from the air combined over a catalyst at high temperature and pressure. And then that ammonia is really an intermediate product. You make a lot of other things with it. In 80% of the time, you make fertilizers with it, nitrogen fertilizers, which are used on fields and sustain about half of the world's food production. And about 20% of the ammonia that we produce today is used in chemicals uses, everything from textiles like nylon and refrigerants, pharmaceuticals, and a lot of things that people don't really think about. So it's a huge industry in itself where hydrogen just plays a role as a feedstock. So ammonia has a lot of different use cases, but additionally, it and I think we'll want to go into this in more detail, but as we first get started on the show, it's also easier to transport. So give us just a quick overview of the benefits of ammonia when you think about it versus hydrogen. Yeah, the problem with hydrogen is that it takes up a lot of space. So it, that makes it extremely costly to transport in bulk. 
With ammonia, once you combine that hydrogen with nitrogen, ammonia liquefies at minus 34 degrees or 10 bar atmosphere at ambient temperature. So because it liquefies relatively easily, the energy input to liquefy it is quite low, which makes it less costly. And it's a molecule that we're transporting across the globe on ships already. There is about 40 ships today that on a continuous basis transport ammonia across the globe. There's another 100 or so, 100 to 200 or so, which do that on, on a one-off basis from time to time. So it's already a traded industry and we have the infrastructure to transport ammonia around, which makes it comparatively a lot easier than hydrogen. What's also interesting is, and something that maybe is hard to, to grasp, uh, is the fact that per unit volume, so per, per cubic meter or per liter, ammonia actually contains more hydrogen than liquid hydrogen itself. That's because it's NH3, uh, so it has another hydrogen molecule in there, and it's not just H2, which is the hydrogen molecule itself. So within a unit volume, it just contains more hydrogen, so it's a more efficient way of transporting hydrogen as well. So we know how to ship it already. We're already doing it, which I think there is some conversation around what the future of shipping hydrogen looks like, and this could be a potential path. Let's talk a bit about, well, first of all, its current emissions profile, and then what the future of greening this industry could look like. So at this current point in time, how is the vast majority of ammonia produced? I guess what's its feedstock, let's say. And then additionally, what are the associated emissions? Yeah, even today, you still need the hydrogen at the end to make the ammonia. The difference to the future, maybe in a decarbonized world, is that we're getting the hydrogen from either natural gas or coal. And in 80% of cases, it's natural gas uh, across the world. And in 20% of times, 20% of the feedstock that is being used is coal that's mostly used in China. And the extraction of the hydrogen is really where 90% of the emissions in the production of ammonia lie. And that's why hydrogen and decarbonizing hydrogen is such a key aspect to this. So, for example, if you're producing ammonia using natural gas, that emits about two tons of CO2 equivalent per ton of ammonia. Uh, and then you still have to do something to the ammonia later to actually make it usable as fertilizer. So actually that doesn't even cover it. And the problem with ammonia is also that, um, that the two, two tons or so is just the production emissions. 60% of the emissions associated with ammonia come from its use. So you combine it with a carbon molecule turned into a fertilizer like urea, apply it to the field. And at that point, a lot of the uh, emissions from the nitrogen get released again into the atmosphere. So actually ammonia itself was probably responsible for somewhere between 2 and 4% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So for those who are listening and feel like they are awash with different colors on the color wheel for hydrogen, which we at BNEF have actually moved away from using these colors because they're somewhat confusing. And I'm going to admit, I actually just asked my producer what the color was for hydrogen that's produced from natural gas, and it's gray hydrogen. Uh, but what we're here to talk about today is actually how green hydrogen, that that is produced from renewable energy sources, could actually dramatically change the upstream emissions associated with hydrogen production and therefore ammonia. So let's talk a little bit about green hydrogen and the emissions benefit. And then, you know, of course, we'll, we'll acknowledge some of the challenges because we know what the opportunities are here. So yeah, Addy, what are your views on, I guess, the future potential for green hydrogen as it relates to ammonia? Sure. Um, maybe taking a step back, there's really two ways of decarbonizing ammonia production. One is just adding carbon capture and storage to the natural gas facility and then capturing the emissions associated with it. We call that blue hydrogen. The problem with blue hydrogen, or I guess the issue long term, is that yes, you save about 70-80% of the emissions with blue hydrogen already today or blue ammonia, but you never get to zero with blue, uh, blue ammonia or blue hydrogen. 
And that's really the issue. It's the easiest way to do it today. And maybe in terms of the additional cost it has, it's, it's much smaller than what we will have for green, but it doesn't net lead you to a net zero future. And that's really where green comes in. Green ammonia produced using hydrogen that is, again, it, in itself produced using renewable electricity and a machine called an electrolyzer that splits water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then we take the hydrogen from that as an input can be as close to net zero as you can get. The emissions reduction is up to 90% or so, um, as if you're using renewable electricity. That's as good as you can get with ammonia. And then you have a little bit that you might need to offset. So long term, we would say that if you really want to decarbonize at least the production side of ammonia, you would need to switch to green and the incentives to do so will need to be there. Now, you're mentioning CCS, which is not currently incredibly cheap technology, and then mentioning also that green hydrogen and therefore, you know, this other production process, which would be significantly cleaner, is even more expensive. Do you see a situation where the ammonia production is cost competitive at some point with current methods of production? I mean, starting again with CCS, if you add carbon capture and storage to your existing ammonia facility today, with a carbon price about of about $100 per ton or slightly higher than that, it would be profitable to produce blue ammonia, blue hydrogen with that carbon price alone. And there are markets where we have that, like in the EU, the EU ETS hovers around that price. And uh, if you uh, look at our forecast for the EU ETS carbon price out to 2030, we will be well in above the 100 euros per ton, and which will make blue ammonia cost competitive by itself. On top of that, there's tax credits in the US, which allow blue ammonia to be competitive today already. Now, if you look at green ammonia, the cost differential today could be about somewhere between two and four times gray ammonia. So if you want to think of this in absolute numbers, gray ammonia or fossil ammonia over the last 10 years has traded at a price of about $480 per ton or so, and is produced at a price about two dollars to $300 per ton or so. Green ammonia will cost you anywhere between $800 to $1,200 per ton, and that's largely because of the cost of hydrogen contained within it. Because green hydrogen today costs at least four or five times as much as the fossil kind so what really needs to happen is for that cost gap to close down the line. And we see that in hydrogen already. We see by 2030, green hydrogen will be cheaper than blue hydrogen, with so hydrogen produced with carbon capture and storage. And then down the line, in the late 2030s, early 2040s or so, that green hydrogen will even outcompete gray hydrogen uh, in most markets that we are looking at. So in parts of the world where there is, you know, functioning carbon market, there is some real potential there. Now, just pivoting, actually, you mentioned the price of... Ammonia, And this is a fascinating part of the ammonia story, which essentially is how the prices are formed and how trading works. Can you talk a little bit about how are prices dictated for when those who are actually purchasing ammonia down the line? Yeah, that's a great question. We produce about 180 million metric tons of ammonia globally today. Just about 10% of that ammonia is traded as is, so actually in the pure form of ammonia. And maybe another 15% or so are traded as a fertilizer product, particularly urea. So about a quarter to a third of the market is really traded in ammonia. But the key point is that traded market sets the benchmark prices that all the ammonia supply in the world uses as, as a formula to set their own pricing methodology. 
there's one price in particular, which is the Tampa ammonia price, which is simply just based on a contract between an ammonia producer called Yara and a phosphate fertilizer producer called Mosaic in the US. And they import about a million metric tons of ammonia every year to Tampa. And the price that they pay for these cargos is used as a global benchmark for what ammonia prices really are. Because why they use Tampa is because it's the most transparent price benchmark. They have the longest history. And that then goes into a lot of pricing formulas across the globe. They might add add an additional charge for transport and storage, some local discounts and so on. But that's the benchmark price. And in that sense, that that one contract really determines a lot. There's other benchmarks as well that are used, like the landed price of ammonia in Western Europe, for example. All of those matter. But the key thing is that maybe 10 to 20% of the market and the price that that traded market receives sets the price for a lot of the global supply and demand of ammonia. So this is a futures rather than a spot price market. This is completely spot. So there is actually no futures market for ammonia. So ammonia is largely traded based on spot prices. There are term contracts. So ammonia is typically traded on one to three year term contracts, uh, where the pricing is then set based on a monthly ammonia price that varies every month. But the contract itself is up to three years long. But there's no futures that you can use, which makes actually hedging and uh, uh, protecting against risk really challenging in the ammonia market. Well, and talk to me a little bit about the volatility. Yeah, ammonia is actually extremely volatile. Uh, the ammonia prices are cyclical, so they go up and down with uh, certain changes in supply and demand and, and availability of natural gas. Again, I mentioned $480 per ton was a 10-year average, including the spikes that happened due to the Ukraine war. But actually, ammonia prices have gone all the way down from $150 a ton to all the way to, I think, over $1,000 per ton, particularly last year when uh, the Ukraine war happened and that caused a spike in natural gas prices. So you can see how volatile the price of ammonia is. I just checked today. Uh, today in Europe, the price of ammonia is already again at $400 per ton, while last year it was about a, at $1,000 per ton. Now, now it dropped tremendously because natural gas prices relaxed. Where in the world is it really popular to import it? And I guess just which countries and are the biggest buyers? Yeah, the biggest buyers of pure ammonia are uh, European countries in particular. India buys a lot of ammonia. And actually, the US is also a net importer of ammonia today, even though they do produce a lot themselves. But then there's a lot of buyers who buy ammonia, not as ammonia, but as urea. So a, a carbon-based molecule produced using ammonia. And India and Brazil really topped that ranking. They're one of the largest fertilizer impo- importers in the world and really dependent on it. Sometimes countries also directly import natural gas to produce their own ammonia. So that's not accounted for within these figures, but that happens as well. Well, then let's talk about who the producers are then. So it's, it's clearly coming from somewhere. Everyone in the world has some level of production of ammonia because they see it as an energy security issue. So every country has at least a, a small amount of ammonia production facilities domestically, even if they, if that means they are importing the natural gas itself. However, I think four or five countries really dominate global supply of ammonia. That's first China. China accounts for about a third of all global supply of ammonia, but China mostly uses that domestically. It's a huge market. All the ammonia that they produce, they use domestically. They also have some sort of export restrictions on fertilizer products like urea, so not much urea or ammonia actually leaves China ever. Then that's about a third. About 9 to 10% typically, outside of today's situation, comes from Russia. Uh, Russia is a major exporter. Over 50% of the production that Russia produces in-house is is exported to other markets. 
in the, both in the form of ammonia and as urea. And that's a big one. What happened now as a result of the Ukraine war is that Russian ammonia exports completely ceased. Why? Because Russia exports ammonia through a pipeline and through an ammonia pipeline that goes from Russia to Ukraine, to a port in Ukraine, from where it is then exported overseas via ships. So that pipeline uh, ceased operating as, as a result of the Ukraine war. Well, Russia is still exporting urea directly from Russia, but ammonia exports from uh, Russia have completely ceased. The other two markets where a lot of ammonia is produced are U- uh, the US and India. So the US, even though it has a lot of natural gas, is producing a lot of ammonia itself, but still needs to import a lot of ammonia to satisfy its own demand. Similarly with India, India produces a lot of ammonia domestically, but all of that ammonia is typically through imported natural gas. So in a sense, they're not self-reliant on fertilizers at all. They just have a lot of production capacity for it. They still need the feedstock to come in or they import ammonia in uh, uh, other places. So on net basis, they still import more ammonia than they produce. The Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. has certainly got hydrogen in its sights in terms of making the U.S. a possibly quite big producer of hydrogen, in particular green hydrogen. Have we started to see any of those projects come online and come to light? And if not, because I think I might know what the answer is, these are large infrastructure projects. When do we expect to start seeing some change? Yeah, what's interesting about the Inflation Reduction Act, especially in terms of ammonia, is the fact that in the law, there's nothing that says that a hydrogen producer in the US could not use the tax credit and then export that subsidized hydrogen as ammonia, for example, to other markets, which really means the US could become one of the cheapest suppliers of clean ammonia of any kind to the globe. Why we haven't really seen any impact of the Inflation Reduction Act tax credit just yet, I would say is one, you're right, uh, it's large infrastructure projects that will take another three, four years to actually become operational. And second, no one has actually received any tax credit, at least on the hydrogen part yet. And that's because they're waiting on, on crucial guidance from the US Treasury and how you can actually produce hydrogen and call that clean or green hydrogen and meet the emissions thresholds that the Inflation Reduction Act has set out for its tax credit. And there's a heated debate, there's full page ads in the New York Times and in the Washington Post about how these criteria should be set out. And that still needs to be determined. And we're working actually on a publication to set out our own view on this. So we'll keep our eyes on what's going to happen in the U.S. with the IRA. There are other parts of the world that are actively engaged in this market, and certainly incumbents don't want to lose market share. Can you talk a little bit about countries that are actively involved in this space and, more importantly, the companies that are actually producing ammonia right now and really what they're doing with it? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, every market with good renewable electricity sources, like good solar and wind resources, as well as abundant natural gas, has been looking at one point at producing green or blue ammonia and trying to export that. Particularly in the Middle East, Australia, Latin America, all of those markets have looked at it. And the Middle East is probably one of the places where most of the projects are concentrated in. One project in particular that is worth highlighting here is in Saudi Arabia. It's the NEOM uh, project. It's a 2.2 gigawatt electrolyzer project that has actually taken final investment decision. So it is becoming reality very soon. It'll be operational by 2026 and it looks to export over a million metric tons of ammonia. That's actually huge for for the traded market that is only about 20 million metric tons today. So that's going to happen. The challenge with NEOM is really part of its business model. So in Saudi Arabia, producing green ammonia makes a lot of sense because they have both good solar irradiation, but also good wind speeds, which means you can combine the two and produce really cheap green ammonia in the region. And the project is financed, so it's going ahead as well. And it has an off-taker in air products, which has been willing to sign a 30-year off-take. So in a lot of ways, the financials are in place, the renewables are in place, and the ammonia will be cheap. 
the question around Neom is really what they will do with the ammonia. Because Air Products is buying the ammonia, but they're not the final user of the ammonia. Air Products' role within uh, within this is to take the ammonia, put it on, on ships, and then export it to other markets and then find willing buyers in these other markets for that ammonia. So they're really a trader of the ammonia. And the stated business model right now is to take the ammonia, move it via ship to Europe, to an import terminal that Air Products is building, actually three of them, and then crack it back to hydrogen. So not actually use the ammonia as is, but crack the ammonia under high temperature back to hydrogen, which in a sense, makes it more useful because there's more use cases for hydrogen and ammonia. But they, that's where, for us, the economics really fall apart. We think it could make a lot of sense for a country like Saudi Arabia to produce ammonia in bulk, ship it, and then for that ammonia to be used as ammonia. And that will be broadly competitive with domestic production in, let's say, a Germany or so. Once you think about cracking the ammonia back, that's such an energy-intense process that the efficiency losses along the chain mean that the hydrogen that you're getting out of that is probably a lot more expensive than just domestic production of the hydrogen. And right now, the business model goes further to use that hydrogen than in road transport, in refueling stations, which is also probably not the most viable use case for uh, clean hydrogen today. It will mean that needs to be heavily subsidized. So there's a huge question around what happens to the project and who actually ends up buying it and if this stated use case will actually go ahead. So overall, I would say any project that is looking to crack ammonia back to hydrogen will struggle with finding buyers. Now, the wider issue beyond Neom is the fact that about half of the world's hydrogen production is looking to export in some form and not just use it domestically because export projects tend to be quite large. 90% of these projects, of these export projects, are looking to export as ammonia. And at BNF, we really struggle with where all this ammonia will go. In the near term, at least, we don't see enough demand for all of this ammonia because the fertilizer industry is quickly saturated. Even if you put all the government targets together, you struggle with demands for that ammonia, especially as is. And cracking makes it really expensive, so that's not really a good option. So we really need to talk about future use cases of ammonia and how quickly those can be developed. What are some of those future use cases and things that they could green? Because certainly when I think of hydrogen, I think about the hard to abate sectors and the things that we're still trying to figure out the answers for decarbonizing. And that's really where it comes into play. That's where we start to hear some very creative solutions to decarbonizing that are really at the technology forefront. And and one of them that I think that we would love to see in that hard to abate sector get cleaned up is shipping, not the shipping of. We've just went through the fact that shipping ammonia and then re turning it into hydrogen again is very cost intensive, although technically feasible. So certainly something that many people are thinking about. But what about as a fuel and as a means to decarbonize this critical part of how the world functions as a global marketplace? That would be probably the use case right after what the low hanging fruit is, which is the fertilizer industry. Once you have decarbonized that or in parallel, the next biggest use case will be the shipping sector. And we at BNF do a lot of analysis on how a net zero shipping industry will look like. And in our net zero scenario, the way this actually looks like is that 60% of the fuel used in shipping will actually be reduced just through fuel efficiency. Efficiency gains could be so strong that 60% of the fuel you could just mitigate through efficiency. About 40% of the pie is then met through a combination of biofuels and hydrogen-based fuels. So we say each 20% or so. So 20% of the total fuel demand for shipping in 2050 could be met through hydrogen-based fuels. And there's really two competing fuels in, in the hydrogen sector. One is methanol and the other is ammonia. Just to put this into context, if that 20% were to use ammonia only, the amount of ammonia you need for that is about 150 million metric tons of ammonia 
which is as large as the ammonia industry today. So just with that, with just with a small share of shipping, you're looking at doubling the industry, industry size of ammonia production today, which is crazy. So that's where all the ammonia could go. Potentially, right? The problem is that one, ammonia has competition from methanol, which is a carbon-based molecule and which uh, a lot of shipping companies are investing in early in terms of buying vessels that are capable of running on methanol. Long term, we do think ammonia could make a lot of sense simply because it's cheaper to get nitrogen out of the air than, than carbon out of the air. It's just more expensive because the concentration of carbon in the air is lower. And by long term, what time frame are you talking I think right now, what we'll mostly see over the next few years is methanol-fueled vessels. And then towards the 2030s, there will be investment in ammonia-fueled vessels as well. So the new vessels coming out will essentially be focused on a different fuel source. Exactly. Or a a dual fuel source. That's how uh, shipping companies are approaching it. So be able to both run on heavy fuel oil, which is the conventional fuel, and today methanol, for example, and then switch between the two depending on which jurisdiction they're currently on and what carbon restrictions they have within that jurisdiction. How difficult would it be to retrofit existing ships? That's a really good question. I mean, what we don't have today is ammonia-capable engines at all. There are companies like MAN, which have suggested they're working on that. And by about mid-decade or so, by 2025, that they will have ammonia-capable engines. Those could be retrofitted in existing um, ships. But I believe also ammonia takes up more space than existing fuel oil, which so you also reduce your voyage duration by that. So there's challenges with retrofitting where I think probably most ships will actually be new builds where they can run either on existing fuel or ammonia. That's how methanol is being approached today. And from the hydrant sector's view, I think that's the approach that most companies will take towards ammonia in the beginning as well, once ammonia-ready vessels are available. So this falls firmly into the new technology space, which we are watching closely, but really is under development. Exactly. I mean, the problem uh, or the challenge with ammonia use as a fuel is the fact that it's very different to handling it as as a cargo. We know very well how to handle it as a cargo. The problem with ammonia is that it's toxic. You don't want to be near ammonia at all. So, But we know how to handle it as a cargo. Using it as a fuel creates a new challenge and we don't have any safety protocols for that yet or these are being under are still under development. So what, first what needs to happen is one, the engines need to become available that can actually combust ammonia. And the second is to have the protocols in place to actually use it as a fuel, which the IMO and other organizations are, are working on, but we don't have them today. All of those are short-term barriers to using ammonia as a a, a shipping fuel. Long-term though, if ammonia is being used, the industry could actually be huge and the demand for it could be huge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's back up a bit. When we first started talking about using ammonia as a potential means to decarbonize the shipping industry, you noted that the number one thing that ammonia can do to reduce emissions is actually going to be in the agriculture space. And we've talked about it upstream. And I just want to know, am I missing something given that ammonia actually has such a downstream, I guess, in scope three applications emissions profile? Is there anything that really can be done to reduce emissions on that end of things? And kind of what's the What's the problem there? Decarbonizing um, uh, ammonia use in, in agriculture will be challenging. Because even if you introduce green hydrogen and reduce about 90% of the production emissions, that's only about 40% of the emissions footprint of the ammonia use. 
because 60% of it is really happening on the field when it's being applied and used by farmers. And that's partly because ammonia releases nitrogen emissions, but also because the most common way ammonia is applied to fields is not as is, but in the form uh, of a fertilizer called urea, which is ammonia combined with a carbon source, which makes it more easy to transport it across the globe and easier to apply. But that there's the problem. You, you need to have a sustainable carbon source to be able to decarbonize that. And that's what most, most countries are using and most countries are not necessarily able to s- switch away from that. Other markets, like in Europe, ammonium nitrate is being used as a source of ammonia, the nitrogen fertilizer. That could be a solution, so switching from urea to ammonium nitrate. But ammonium nitrate is more expensive, it has explosive properties, so um, that's also a challenge. So partly the solution to decarbonizing nitrogen fertilizers used in agriculture is one. One answer to this is really using hydrogen and, and greening the ammonia production itself. There's probably a part which means that you switch to fertilizers that don't use any carbon in, within them, of themselves. There's probably a part of this which just means reduction of nitrogen fertilizer use overall. And these are questions that our sustainable agriculture team is looking at in a lot more detail uh, and will come up with a more clear answer in the, fu- in the near future. I mean, I guess that's part of the reason why your job is a lot of fun, because you get to overlap with the sustainable agriculture team and then the clean energy team. And there's a lot of different people to collaborate with because it is so interconnected to so many different parts of the economy. One of the things you had mentioned a little bit earlier on was policies that may need to be formed around some of the safety considerations. And certainly we know that hydrogen is flammable. There are various other things in our daily lives like natural gas that are flammable, although albeit not quite as flammable. But let's talk about ammonia and really whether or not many countries around the world are really focused on this safety consideration as something they're going to need to think about in the future as we do expect to see ammonia really taking off with some potential additional use cases in the future. And the reason I bring this up really specifically is I think in many of our minds, there's kind of this picture of a fairly recent explosion of an ammonia facility in Lebanon. And that was just over a year ago in 2022 in Beirut. When we talk about hydrogen, we say, oh, well, you know, the Hindenburg, but it was so long ago. And maybe you have this ability to almost put distance in time. But we don't with this particular disaster that really was quite fresh in people's memories. And therefore, do you think that's something that those on the policy side are really looking at quite closely when they're thinking about whether or not to really support certain parts of hydrogen and ammonia production in their countries? I think a lot of that is still being developed at the moment, just because there is no green or low carbon ammonia industry today, really. There's pilot scale facilities, but not really much use of ammonia. The ammonia that is being used and sold is used in the fertilizer and agriculture industry, where we have safety protocols in place to to handle ammonia. But yeah, once you're talking about doubling or tripling demand for ammonia, that will mean a lot more infrastructure, a lot more people involved in this, which will be exposed to ammonia, which is a toxic gas. If you convert it to something like ammonium nitrate, that's uh, used in explosives. So you have a flammability issue there. So all of that will need to be handled with, particularly when you're using it as a fuel on ships. And that's, I would say that's mostly still under development and still under discussion and something that needs to be figured out. We haven't really spent a lot of time and attention on it today. Because simply because there isn't really an industry there today. I think these are questions that we'll need to tackle as we go forward into the future and ammonia's role increases. 
safety protocols really vary by 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 markets. For example, in in Europe, ammonia is really only put on trains and then on one pipeline that goes from Russia to Ukraine. Otherwise, people don't really like to handle ammonia in land. In the US, you can put ammonia on a truck, you can put it on a train, you can put it through a pipeline. There's not very many restrictions on how you can handle ammonia. So there's also differences between countries on how how uh, risk averse they are towards using ammonia and its safety issues. So all of that will need to be harmonized to some extent to be able to enable a globally traded market for uh, ammonia more widely than it is already traded today. So we already discussed the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and how that may spur the hydrogen industry in the U.S. to to become much more prominent. What other sort of policies are really in place to or could be in place in the future to really get this going? Yeah, it's actually something we're looking at as a research partner of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum Climate Technology Coalition on how to stimulate ammonia demand. And what we're settling on is ammonia probably needs both supply side incentive for the hydrogen to scale up and become cheap. So that could be anywhere from direct subsidies to fixed premium support, contract for difference mechanisms and so on to make hydrogen cheaper. But also demand side mechanisms. We've talked about carbon pricing before. That will be a huge one, particularly for for blue ammonia, uh, which with a carbon price can already be competitive. Mechanisms like the carbon border adjustment mechanism in in the EU, which will incentivize importers to, to rely on more cleaner forms of ammonia as well. And then just encouraging the use of clean ammonia in sectors where there is no other alternative, right? Like in the fertilizer industry and so on. That could be, for example, to quotas or mandates. For example, in the EU, what we have is a quota to use renewable hydrogen in existing industry that is already using fossil hydrogen. The biggest user of fossil hydrogen today in Europe is the fertilizer industry. They use about, I think, two and a half million metric tons of hydrogen. So they now have a quota by 2030 to replace about 42% of the hydrogen that they're using with green hydrogen, meaning they will be producing green ammonia. And by 2035, that's all the way to 60%. Quotas like that and sort of carrots and sticks like that will probably help a lot in scaling up industry. Well, and then how about one of the policy interventions that certainly is more of a stick? How about the carbon border adjustment mechanism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that will really define what form of ammonia is traded and imported into the EU. Once the carbon border adjustment mechanism is in place, which will it will be fully in place from 2034, carbon prices alone will probably encourage domestic ammonia importers to rely on lower carbon forms of ammonia because the carbon price incentivizes you to do so. With a carbon price of over 100 euros per ton, blue ammonia is already in the money. And by that time, green ammonia is probably cheap enough that a carbon price alone will also incentivize green ammonia use in in domestic industry over fossil fuels. So the carbon border adjustment mechanism will really define what ammonia is being imported and not just for ammonia, other, other hydrogen projects as well. You've been great at giving us so much detail around this industry and the pricing. And I am going to ask one final extremely novice question. Can you see it and can you smell it? (laughs) I certainly don't want to smell it because that might affect me in some way. Um, um, Yeah, it's a colorless gas with a pungent odor. Okay, so it smells bad. We might be familiar with it in cleaning products and stuff, but it's uh, you'll know it when you smell it, so to speak, but not necessarily when you see it. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. 
neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.